Human Meaning of Seth. Um, here to talk about Wimbledon Green and comics and other stuff. Um, starting a worldwide comics tour, I guess, <laughs> so to say. Well, from here. The North America leg. Yeah. You're kind of going down to uh, is it Chicago and L.A. Going down to Seattle, uh, L.A., Chicago, and New York. Some quick stops. We're doing like, uh, some speaks with uh, Tobinay, right? Yeah, uh, that's right. I'm going to be uh, picking up with Adrian in Adrian to me in uh, Los Angeles, and then we're carrying on through Chicago and New York together, doing some talks together, basically. Okay. Um, so I got some questions, and I also have some stuff to kind of show and get like, you know, what about more stuff like that? Um, first off, with Wimbledon Green, one thing I know is going through the first uh, couple of pages. Um, and so it's all only stuff I was able to look at. It's a different style of storytelling you're doing for this. Um, with Clyde's fans and with, you know, all pretty much you know, the Palookaville stuff, it's all very first person based storytelling. Yeah. But this is kind of more like, a, I guess, an expose. So yeah, to it, say actually, on the it takes a variety of forms, I suppose. But I think uh, stylistically, the biggest change for me is just that I decided to. Um, do it in a series of short strips. Um, I was looking at like work that Dan Close and uh, Chris Ware had done, where they had done these longer narratives that are composed of shorter strips, you know, two or three pages that have a title usually, and then, uh, but uh, and they but they all follow the same um, character, for example, or the same setting. And then by the end of the book, you kind of get the bigger picture through reading these smaller strips. So you don't have to fill in the gaps between everything. People fill it in for you. Whereas my own work it tends to be more, as you said, like more first person. It's more um, you start at a certain point in the story and you work your way through the whole thing. So that means there's really the camera, if you want to call it that, never leaves the character. Yeah. If, he, if he goes to bed, you watch him go to sleep. You watch him wake up the next morning, sort of thing. See how his cats are doing. Yeah, exactly. This gives you the freedom to uh, not have to fill in all those gaps. It's a, it's a much, and it, and also this material is just so much lighter, meant yeah. to be humorous that. That um, you don't need that that level of attention to achieve the same kind of tone. Was was it also because it says here from the sketchbook of mm -hmm. the cartoonist Seth? Exactly. So was this just some random stories that have been? Well, it's kind of it's, it's certainly what I would say is that this work was not created to be a book. It was created as an exercise in my sketchbook. I decided, as I said, with that. Um, that style of storytelling where you're using shorter strips, I wanted to try that out. So I just sat down one day and said, today's the day to try it out. And um, I was reading a book at the same time called uh, A Gentle Madness, which is a history of book collectors. And so um, uh, in a one-second decision for subject matter, I decided that I would make a comic book collectors, uh, something I know well. And... Um, and I'd just been so charmed by the uh, this book I'd been reading, which was all about uh, basically the rich book collectors of the 19th and 20th century, people who had built up huge collections, who were millionaires. So I just decided to transfer that same sort of obsessive rich behavior over to the comic book guys. Generally, you think of comic book guys as poor characters living in a basement. Mom's basement. Yeah. But these guys, I wanted them to be rich men with mansions, although they were still basically the same sort of nerdy kind of characters. They just were on a grander scale. And the, the story just wrote itself. It was very much created to be done page by page as I worked through it. Um, only when I got to the end 
did I think like that I was happy enough with it to put it into a book? Um, one thing I noticed um, was kind of like a contrast. I don't know if you're going further or not. Was kind of like um, the way you're saying, like the the rich um, comic collectors. Was it kind of like translating as like kind of looking at comics as more as an art of like that kind of collective mentality? Because like you know, rich people are just as geeky as eccentric as as poor people. It's just the comic collectors seem to have that stigma of being, you know, living in one's basement and stuff, so I was wondering if you're kind of going for that kind of, like, relating it as, you know, a dip, you know, it's just as substantial as other art forms, just because it started as an adolescent, you know. No, yeah. I wasn't trying to give it no. that level of legitimacy. <laughs> 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 I, t- I purely was... Reading um, too much yeah, into it. Yeah, it's very much... Uh, most of this came out of, I guess you'd say, out of my uh, subconscious, I suppose, I was working on it. Um, there is, like, I think about halfway through the book I realized that the actual content of the stories was pretty much determined by having read thousands of regular comic books as a child and that the character without realizing it sort of um, he's sort of based on all those kind of comic books I read without realizing it I'd given him a secret identity I'd given him like his own uh, fortress of solitude and his (laughs) boy sidekick all this kind of stuff came out but in a way that I hadn't noticed I was doing it I even realized, in a sense, that he had a little costume that, was, in a way, the, was the, like, the, yeah, the with his little hat and his little his little cape, all this sort of stuff. It's like it gets ingrained into you, and it just it came out without realizing it. But at the halfway point, when I realized that, I just sort of went with it at that point and said, and now it was no longer in the subconscious; it was much more in the forefront of what I was doing. And I think the comic book collecting, it just get, it was just a subject, basically. It, it's it's a, it's of course as a cartoonist. It's something I'm well familiar with, so it became an easy foil to play against. It gave me something to make fun of, but really the satire is very gentle in the book. Yeah. It's not uh, meant to like um, really tear apart these kind of guys, because I do have a great deal of affection for the sort of nerdy collector. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that sometimes cartoonists, comic book artists, can get really angry, bitter towards the comic book collectors, and I've always wondered about that. That's well, I think there. It, it's not. It's, it's a projected self loathing. There's a bit of that, I think, for sure, because I think I think a lot of it is there, but for the grace of God, go I kind of mm. thinking. Um, a lot of collectors they fall into a variety of character types. There's probably about six or ten character types that are collectors, and you can identify them pretty fast. And some of them are charming types, guys who just have like an obsessively nerdy interest in some subject that they've extended too far into their life so that they've uh, changed their name to Luke Skywalker or something, you know. <laughs> there, something that's sort of <laughs> sweet. I do know of someone who named his son Cal Al. Yeah, well, there you go. Really? It's a perfect example. Yeah. Shops in Aaron's store. But yeah. then there's the others who can become... Collector types can be quite mean sometimes, too, and that is the type that I think you get tired of dealing with. As a collector, I've certainly had to deal with the aggressive collectors who will push you out of the way at a book sale to grab things. Or guys, there's also a type like there are collectors who collect for, um, like to find out things, which are usually to me the most interesting types. Guys who are recording history, you know, guys who have decided for some reason they're going to, uh, I don't know, say like the early film collectors who figured out you know where all the films were, who'd made them, what studios existed, where you know all this kind of information that's now important, but at the time was just some obsessive guy, you kind know, of like in an attic. Urban archaeology. Yeah, exactly. Um, but then there are other collectors of that sort who are 
greedy types who acquire information they won't share with others, who will have rare copies of things they won't let anyone see. Um, those that, so these kind of different characteristics from the charming to the mean-spirited um, certainly give you a variety of ways to feel towards collectors. So sometimes you feel nice towards them and sometimes you don't. I, I did my own time working in a comic store for a couple of years and it, it is quite an interesting the contrast. Like there's one guy who wouldn't let me touch his comics. I was like, I've, you know, yes, I, I'm I know a, those comic types. professional. <laughs> <laughs> you know, 17 year old comic professional, but still it's like that, that mentality of like, you know, that. That's kind of the modern collector that I actually do find a bit repulsive. Mm -hmm. the, where they're collecting things that really aren't rare and aren't valuable, like uh, historically but it's all uh, based on this obsessive kind of desire to possess and for this um, worry about condition. Everything's uh, like this idea of getting these things that you can never touch. And um, it seems like more like a mental aberration than like anything positive because you want these collectibles that are actually millions of them out there and everyone's carefully putting them away so they don't get damaged. There's something obsessive about that that's kind of unpleasant. I'm going to show you something that's quite the contrast. This is what I do. Okay, what is this? Oh, okay. Uh, it's very nice to see things bind. I bound up, I bind comic books myself. Although I have no interest in seeing these horrible <laughs> early comics I was of my own. Some kind of response. Yeah. We're looking yeah. at the old Mister X's and stuff. Well, it's great. Yeah, I, great beautiful to see it bound. But uh, as I said, I've no interest in seeing my own work. <laughs> But uh, I, I've had a few series of comics bound myself, and it is like a great method of preserving them. It's a new thing of kind of a, a little craze, I think, of starting in town with a, some local cartoonists. We all go on a journey to this place. It's 20 bucks a book. Wow, that's very reasonable. Yeah. I've paid a lot more than that. <laughs> yeah, that's really good, and it's a nice binding, too. Yeah, no, they do all the universities and stuff. And, uh, it's a good way to have these comic books and actually be able to read them, too, yeah. not have them stuck in a box somewhere. A big, a big white box and such. And yeah. I, I definitely embrace that kind of like trying to share stuff and like that, that, that's what always strikes me with the, with the really severe comic geeks is that kind of like you know it's mine yeah I mean, there's a childish response in there somewhere too um now I got some questions about some other stuff um kind of going with this um collaborations I'm just like looking through your like depth of work and the, all the stuff you have and there's not a lot of collaborations now is there a specific reason for this like avoidance like I, I know with Mr. X it was like a you know young guy needing a yeah, job and stuff exactly uh, but then I've also got like the um, the real stuff uh, that you did with uh, Ihorn and uh, oh yeah and yeah and Mr. Brown and it's a really neat story really neat style that the two of you kind of got going on it um yeah, collaboration's not my thing. Just and and that real stuff story is really um, is like a, a good example of. I mostly got involved with that because I enjoyed Dennis Eichhorn's writing at that point, and I thought it would be fun to illustrate one of his stories. Uh, when the time came to do it, I didn't actually enjoy doing the process at all, and. Um, and actually, the reason that Chester Brown is in there with me, and actually Joe Matt did some work in that too, is just because I just couldn't finish it. Really? I was going through a period in my life where I was having some difficulties, and I had this thing hanging over my head, and when push came to shove and the time to finish it, it was very much like the old days of you call up the artist friends, you know, like like back in the 50s where artists would get together and crank something out, and we just, just sat down and we, 
we cranked it out. We <laughs> sat there in my apartment and we got it done like in a night and uh, it just had to be done. Um, I just don't think I'm a collaborator by, uh, by nature. Um, I think it can work. I mean, if you have like the right teaming of people, it doesn't work very often, I find. But for me, I think the thing is you, you have to be a dictator with your own work. You have to be the person who makes all the decisions. And I want to like stand or fall by whether it works. Um, if it's successful, I don't really want to feel it might be successful because of the other person. Or if it fails, the same thing. I like the idea that progressively as I get older too, I'm less likely to take input from people just because I feel more sure of, whereas I'm not sure that what I'm doing is right, I'm sure that it's, it's they're my choices, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'm usually not happy with the results, but it's the process of doing it that's important. I imagine you make enough compromises doing your illustration work. Oh yeah. Well, actually, there's no compromises there because I've compromised from the the very beginning. <laughs> <laughs> I I don't even think about compromise in uh, illustration work. I mean, it's it's a job. Yeah, it's purely a job. Um, now that I'm doing, I'm phasing more into book design. I find that I have more integrity about it, and there I'm I'm facing more of that problem of you know having to compromise with other people's decisions. But with illustration, I always was like, I'll do whatever you want. Um, I'll, you know, usually they ask you for the idea, you present it, and then they start changing it, but I was never cared about changing it. I was always well aware that they were always making it worse, <laughs> but that was their choice. If they wanted to make it worse, go right ahead. It seems like there's like two sides to, to, to your body at work. Like there's the one side that's like your Palookaville and your Wimbledon's yeah. and that stuff, and then it's just the other side that's so your commercial Yeah, I, I as a as a illustrator, I never considered it really part of my work in a true sense anyways. It was a job to make money. I mean, I tried to give them their money's worth. I tried to do like as good a job as I could with the parameters of what I was dealing with. But it was very um, cold-blooded on a certain level. I was just giving, I'm selling style, basically. They like my drawing style, so you give them what they want. And, you know, sometimes it works out, they get an okay drawing, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, with my own work, I'm more... With certain jobs, like I've done commercial work where I feel it's more connected directly to me, like say a cover for The New Yorker or something, mm -hmm. where I feel like it's important to make it as best I can because it reflects more on me too than say an illustration in a, a lawyer magazine or something. But even there, you know, it's out of your hands to some degree. It still feels like your work, but not 100%. The real work is the work that nobody else can have any say about. Um... Um, model towns. Mm -hmm. a little side subject. Uh, I've heard a uh, rumoring that you're creating a model town here. Yeah, it's fairly large already. It's up to about, it's probably only about the in between 40 and 50 buildings at the moment. But um, it's an ongoing project that's going to just keep going. Um, it's, it's one of those projects that was not created with any um, logical reasoning behind it beyond just wanting to do it. Um, I suppose that the the origin of how this project started was that I was planning a future graphic novel that takes place in this place called Dominion, uh, an imaginary town in Ontario. Sounds like an Ontario town. Yeah, I think there's probably a Dominion in every province, I bet you. <laughs> but, um, so I started to work out some story ideas, and as I was working on it, I thought I would do some backstory on the town itself and figure out the history of the place. What, and so I just started in a very haphazard way to put together some ideas on how this town came together. And as I was working out some of the businesses in my mind, I built a model of one of them just for fun, and I enjoyed the process. So I built another and another, and eventually, 
I found it as a good method to organize the information that while I was building this model, I would work out the history of this specific place in my notebook. And wow. so it kind of, and eventually though, it turned into a project of its own. I'm not entirely sure if it still is the background for a graphic novel anymore or if it's just a project that I'm working on for some other reason. Just a different kind of creative output that may yeah. not necessarily be a commercial creative output. But yeah, exactly. Get your hands to it. What's the scale? Well, it's. Uh, I would say the scale is is not um, an accurate scale. Like if I were like building a, a model railroad, um, the buildings are to different scales. Um, I build them completely uh, off the top of my head, sort of as I'm building them. So a skyscraper might be uh, two feet tall, but then like a, a corner store might be uh, half as big. You know, so they don't really sit together. Uh, as like with a real accurate scale, but somehow the sort of they're very roughly made too. They're just cardboard, like corrugated cardboard, glued together and painted with hand paint, so they, or house paint. So they have a certain slick quality to them, but real, but it's sort of undercut by the crudeness of the materials. So they look very kind of clunky in a way. And somehow when they all sit together, they're sort of united by the the look of them, yeah, even though the scale is completely wrong. Ah, it's, it's a fun personal project. Yeah, well, it reminds me of childhood. You know, the kind of uh, pleasure you would have as a child to take like a cardboard box and cut doors <laughs> in it and make a little fort for your GI Joe or something. It has that same kind of off-the-cuff creative response. I'm s still making forts. <laughs> yeah. For my wargaming. Oh, okay. That's something else. Colin's Kingdom of Trolls. <laughs> I don't have. It. I'm historical. I do historical gaming. Trolls. War of eighteen twelve. Anyway. Um, one another thing I was looking at recently, you drawn in quarterly anthology stuff with colored work, um, with like the painted stuff. Like yeah, sure. Got stuff on it. Um, are you going to be revisiting that style? Probably not. It's not really where my work has been going in the last few years. In fact, well, I mean, I suppose to some degree, like Wimbledon Green, if you look at it, is all hand colored but in a very perfunctory way. It's just like one or two uh, wash colors dropped in over the uh, panels. Um, I think that I'm getting, as I, as the more I work, the more I realize that every project is going to be long and take a long time. And because of that, it's like I want the most expedient methods I can. And hand coloring the uh, comic book artwork is just too laborious a task. Mm -hmm. Uh, doing it in the sketchbook is easy to just drop a quick wash over something. But to do panels where you actually hand color them in watercolor means basically that you can't make any mistakes in the inking process because then you can't white anything out. And so that means like uh, you might, you either have to just be very good or you have to be um, willing to redo things. Yeah, it's a much Little slower, worries. boring process that just is not going to add up like a large pile of pages. You could work in acrylic. You could, um, but it's not my natural approach to things. I tend to work like in water-based, like gouache or watercolor, mm -hmm. uh, both of which are kind of delicate and generally have to get them right. You can do a little painting over with gouache, but not more than once. So it's not really, it's not really conductive to that sort of thing. The thing I hate about gouache is that it often dries a completely different color than the one you put on. Yeah, you kind of have to get used to that. And also you can't do any... It's one of those mediums, both of them are mediums that are unforgiving. You can't make any real mistakes. They show very easily. The, 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 the brushwork in gouache, you know, if it's messy, you know, it's going to show. Or you, if you run out of the color, you'll never mix it again. So it's, these are things that you have to be prepared to, like, do in a slow manner. 
I hope you won't be offended, but uh, have you ever thought of computer coloring? Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, basically what I do, like, in Palookaville is essentially computer coloring now. Um, I still do overlays, which are like an old-fashioned mechanical process where you you basically take a separate piece of paper and draw onto it where you want the color to go. And But um, where that used to be a photographic process, now basically they're taking my overlay and scanning it like the artwork itself and just using a computer to put that area of color in. So I'm just one step removed from computer color. Um, I would do it on the computer if I understood the computer, but I'm still not at that point yet. I haven't learned any of the graphics programs for uh, a computer yet. So. Do you have one at home? I do have a computer at home now. Actually, there are two computers in the house now. Uh -huh. But I don't use them for art in any way. I just use them for email and surfing around on the internet and that sort of stuff. The rumors be stuck in the past are true. I'm I'm still obsessed with the past, uh, but I'm not stuck in the past. You know, you have to live in the in the modern world. As much as I've tried to resist certain elements of the modern world, um, you you know you're not living in 1920. You're living in, you know, the current era, and um, I resisted the computer for a long time, but when I got married, my wife brought her computer into the house, and so I just got used to it, and it has its advantages. Um, I think like any kind of new technology, there are positives and negatives to it. Um, I've found the computer really useful for acquiring things. It's really good for like if you s there's some book you want, you can find it instantly. <laughs> it's very it's Amazon. like it's yeah, it's really changed the nature of like uh, of purchasing things for me. I used to have to go to a lot more effort to find things. Uh, even you know just going to a store and getting them to order it for you is one step removed from like just clicking on something and having it instantly. Well, that that kind of makes brings you back to the limited green. Like, I remember when I was, like, you know, 10 years ago collecting stuff and trying to find it, and, like, really, when you find that one comic, it was like, wow. Yeah, you know? definitely. And now, it, it, that, that, that hunt, you know, the hunt for that one thing, it's kind of, in some ways, it's lost. Yeah, find, like, it has been. The computer has changed the whole nature of collecting. And I think it's moved a lot of collecting f into just acquiring. Mm. Um, I know that there were books I was looking for for 15 years, probably, with no luck whatsoever. And then when the computer came in the house, I had them all within a month, probably. Yeah. Just because it, it's like you've got these uh, used book services or whatever, you go on there and a book you thought was impossible to find, there's five copies of it right there. And that, whether that's gratifying, in a way it does take a great deal of the um, pleasure out of collecting, because there. Even though I felt as a collector before the computer that anything I was looking for, I would eventually find it. There was some great thrill about the moment when you did find it, when you yeah. dug in that box at the back of a bookstore and there it was. I, I remember finding a book I'd been looking for for 15 years at the Military Bookman in New York City. And just how wonderful that felt. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it was like a great moment. Actually, Chris Ware was just telling me that he was in New York and he went into a humor section and there were several like 18th century books he'd been seeking, you know, wow. and, and it was like, you know, that great moment of, you know, expecting nothing and then there's that thing you want and then suddenly, you, you know, you grab it and you don't want to let it out of your hands <laughs> until you've purchased it. <laughs> I can remember many of those experiences where, and also the, the thing about uh, the old way of collecting was that there were things you didn't know you were looking for. And there was also that great moment of when you'd be looking through some section with the same old junk you'd seen a million times, and suddenly there was something you didn't know what it was. And you opened it up, and you realized this was like something new and exciting. 
and like that you had no idea it existed. Well, that that kind of segues into um, with uh, it's a good life because with Kahlo, mm-hmm. how you found out about his stuff was just that whole you know get something because you found it, it's neat, go through it, and then you sure. find this one thing, and it's like wow. Yeah. You know? Well, that's and kind of how you teach yourself the whole process of anything you're interesting mm-hmm. in, interested in, which was, is what was great, is the, that random discovery and then the pursuit to discover more about it. Um, I do think that that's much more difficult to do on a computer because that, I mean, it still happens. You order some, you buy some book or something and you find something in it you didn't expect and that leads you somewhere else. But certainly there was like a random quality to collecting through used bookstores that was exciting and an education. You Certainly, how I t- Yeah, it's how I tra- taught myself the history of cartooning, basically, just through that process of one thing leading to another. Well, it's quite different, like, I found, like, when I've been in Toronto, just that whole mentality about the older stuff, like, there's a lot more, like, just with, like, more established families and stuff with like those collections of the New Yorkers and stuff. I remember sure. visiting my grandma and going like to the family cottage and stuff. Something we have in no way in BC, like that whole time and going through that and seeing like all this really neat stuff. I remember as a kid, like, who cares about these articles? Look at these great comic strips and stuff. Oh, sure. Well, certainly in the New Yorker, that was my experience with it. It was that slow unfolding of, of that rich history of cartoonists that were there found like, you know, bit by bit. You, now, what is your current uh, collections of of choice? Well, I think right now I'm actually collecting rather mundane things. I'm I'm I've been buying a lot of movies. You know, very simple fact that I've been uh, I find that my attention has turned to uh, you know watching a lot of films I haven't seen before, um, and I'm using the computer to you know buy things off of eBay. You know, like I've been sort of digging into early British film at the late uh, at the moment um, but I think I went through a very long period of collecting cartooning that I've not reached the end of but I've reached a point where there's not as much stuff for me to explore at the moment kind of like and, the climax of yeah and whereas I'm still collecting I'm always buying things I have like I I collect a lot of things I think right now I'm just going through a period where I'm mostly just I'm reading a lot which I don't really consider collecting since you just go out and buy the book you're looking for to read. You don't have to track it down. And I'm watching a lot of films, which I also don't really think of in the collecting category because you just buy them because that's your access point to see them. If they would just show them on, on television every night, I wouldn't bother to buy them. <laughs> so I'd say my collecting is at a lower ebb at the moment. But I guess my main thing that I actually collect would be old examples of Canadian cartooning. That's probably like my main collection. But you don't find that that often. Do you learn from? Do you look to films to learn from them for storytelling techniques? To some degree, I think. I think I actually look more towards prose to learn for storytelling. Um, with film, I'm not sure exactly what I'm looking for in film. I think I'm very interested, basically, in the emotional content of movies, um, because they are such a powerfully emotional medium. And it seems to be what they're most usually striving for is to connect with the emotions. And and often a great film is one that you feel some sort of real emotional response to. And I think that probably that's what I'm just seeking out. I mean, it can come from any spectrum of film. I mean, I can watch an old B-movie from the 50s um, that's really a terrible film. But there might be one scene in it 
that has like some resonance to you and that's the thing that like I think I'm looking for in film where afterwards I'll say you know it was that one scene where they shot the giant ants or something you know, <laughs> it, it may be something as stupid it, yeah. it may be something as stupid as that but there's like you there's something you take away from a film if there's anything in it that's emotionally resonant and I think just by like exploring through film I'm looking for the films that make that connection to me in some way I recently rewatched Vertigo and uh, that film was just so um, so much more potent to me now than it was when I saw it back in like I don't know my 20s um, that it seemed like I was really like watching a piece of great art I had complaints with it you know as with anything there are points you like better than others but you could really you're looking for that moment where you feel like somebody's uh, producing their top work mm. and that can be all over the place like from any aspect of film are there any particular genres of film that are really like catching you nowadays that just uh, well not really although I would say that I've been watching more horror films than I've seen in the past I've been starting to watch like the early horror films of the 30s the universals and the RKO's stuff that I'd watched as a kid and I'm kind of revisiting it now to see like if it still has any potency and a lot of it really does there's something very slow in the storytelling style of those early films they're very um, they still seem really connected to theater in some way the way that they're on these closed sets for the most part and um, they're very atmospheric they have a fairy tale quality to a lot of them um, but I think what I find so interesting about them is they tread that thin line between boring and interesting <laughs> they're very slow like the storytelling approach is different than a movie is today which is very quick and uh, there's something appeal I was watching The Island of Lost Souls not too long ago with uh, Bela Lugosi and um, Charles Lawton and the, the way the story unfolds uh, moves at a kind of glacial pace that is extremely interesting and um, I, was, I'm kind of, I guess I'm kind of interested at the moment in how um, our attention span has changed for storytelling. You see it in books, you see it in movies, etc. And, and I'm not sure where it's going, but this does seem to be something I'm interested in at the moment. Um, one thing, kind of going along with that kind of like really use of influences in the past and stuff, um, I know you're not proud of it, but one thing in the Mr. X is I noticed is that really, you know, because of Mr. X, that put on the use of deco. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not something that really relates to your other stuff, but it's still like a really neat style. Do you find that something you'll be utilizing in something else? Not particularly. I mean, like that work, that in, um, the whole 20s period is really um, kind of the backbone underneath my style. I don't think my style really immediately says 1920 or anything because there are certain... There are certain elements of any different style that are like the key elements that mark it. So when you see somebody is trying to do like a deco style, you recognize it instantly. Um, but, but the basic simplicity of how they approach design and drawing in uh, the 1920s is really like underneath the sort of backbone of the kind of cartooning I do, which is aimed for like a uh, straightforward sort of simplicity of line uh, with no textures involved or you know anything of that sort. There's no uh, cross hatching or any of that stuff. And it's also um, the way I compose panels, the compositional use of shapes is very based on like an early kind of 20th century style of design, from really from the 20s to the 50s. Uh, it also reminds me of what they call the uh, Belgian clear line school of Hergé sure. in uh, Chaland. Yep, yep, Chaland. Is that how it's pronounced? Yep. Chaland. Were, were those... Oh yeah, they're connected for sure. Um, certainly, like right around when I was working on Mr. X, I was very uh, enraptured with Hergé's work on Tintin, um, 
and that ha that really had a strong influence on me. But I also think that um, the New Yorker school of cartoonists, which I was also very interested in at that time, was like had a similarly strong influence, and they both fall into that clear line style, um, where you really you just use basic contour lines to draw everything. Um, some some of it more lush with a brush, and some of it more uh, stingy with just straightforward uh, lines that never change in width. But but that sort of uh, was I had a response to that kind of drawing that I think was my natural impulse. That's the kind of artwork I like, and that's why I focused on that. Um, I can remember a few years earlier than that, not knowing like how I was going to draw. I was drawing in a variety of styles and thinking like, what style is going to be mine? But just through I think following the interests, like seeing the artists who I liked and trying to pick up from them, it naturally evolved into that clear line style. Um, and I, you know, I think it is one of the you know, three or four schools of comic art that exist. Uh, for me, that's just like, now it's just second nature. I probably couldn't draw in another style if I tried. Well, I, I do see it's like some contrast of different styles in your stuff. Like, there's definitely a completely different style between the Wimbledon Green and the Clyde's fans. Yeah, well, it's They're, cartoonier, for yeah. one thing. Um, I think just the fact that I was dealing with humorous material, the cartooning got grosser in a way. Like, it's more <laughs> made up of, like, rubber tires and... And, uh, you know, everything's like uh, tubes and tires in the construction of the figures, basically. People have big bulbous noses and, and uh, you know, like their feet are little round things, etc. Uh, and I think in Clyde fans, I'm trying to be a bit more naturalistic. Um, although it's not, like, naturalistic is like really the wrong term in a way because you're working with like a straightforward cartoon stylization. But I think in both of them, what I'm really trying to do is just keep the images simple. Even though there might be like a surface gloss that's very different to how I approach it, my concern is that the image read quickly and that you um, don't have to spend any time lingering on the image. I want you to read the images in the same way you read the words. You move through the book very quickly in that sense. If you want to come back later and study the drawing for detail, that's fine, but it's all really designed just for simple reader, like our simple readability. Now, uh, one question that was one person wanted me to ask. When are you finishing Clyde's fans? Well, in theory, it should be done in about two years. It's still got... I, latest issue will be out in about a month, oh, maybe okay. less. Um, there will definitely be another issue in the spring sometime, like spring towards uh, summer. Um, but I can say truthfully that it's going to take about two more years till I finish up. I've still got to do like about four, five more issues in total. And that's a slow process for me. That's, um, a, that's an epic. Yeah, it's gonna, it's long for me, very long. I don't think the next book will be quite as long. It's in total, it probably would be it's about fifteen issues of my comic book, for example, and that's going to have taken me more than ten years to do. Um, and so the next one might be a little less, like maybe half that length or something. But it's hard to say. It all kind of happens organically. Um, on some level, because comics are periodicals in theory, you have this idea that you know there's a pressure to produce another issue. But I've kind of just put that to the back of my mind, and I just think like I'm just producing this work as work, you know. And when it's done, it's done. Then it will exist as a book. I, the only thing I ever really worry about is like, will I die before it's done? Sort of thing. Like, you know. <laughs> Besides that, I'm not concerned with like the idea of schedule. Even though I know as a reader, you would like to read things in a timely manner, and you're asking a lot of an audience to sit around for ten years to read a story. Um, it's like I, I have sort of two choices. I can do it at the pace I do it or not do it. So that's kind of the only answer. Well, I, I'm kind of curious about the fact that you're still doing 
as a periodical because I've noticed with a lot of alternative cartoonists they're no longer doing yeah. the comic book periodical. Uh, they're going straight to graphic novels. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, there's advantages to both, you know, and I like the comic book still, even though I would say that Truthfully, I'm probably not producing the comic book experience for the reader that I would like to have as a reader myself. I'm asking them to sit through like a serialized story that takes a long time. So that's really like um, maybe asking more of the reader than you, they might want to give. It's hard to say. But I still like that process. I like to produce a comic book. I, like, I also like that it creates like a small gap or small sections of the story to work on. So I can do like you know, 24 pages and release that rather than, you know, wait 10 years to produce the whole book. Um, but the flip side of that is it is very satisfying to produce a book and just present that work as a, in, in its final form. Um, but th many cartoonists find that very difficult to do. It's hard to sit down and do 200 pages or 300 pages of a comic book, which might take you 8 to 10 years, or if, if you're faster, maybe take you 5 years. Um, with no support, you know, you're not going to make any money during that period. And I think that there is like a truth that out of sight, out of mind, and that comic book keeps your uh, keeps you in front of your audience, so that when the book comes out, you have that audience still there. Five years is a long time; they can kind of forget about you. Mm -hmm. No, that's true. Um, no, I, I think it's a neat contrast where that the, there is some people who who will only release the graphic novel. You mm -hmm. see something like once every six or seven years, like. You know, maybe like a new Art Spiegelman thing or yeah. something. And then there's kind of the neat contrast who's like, not necessarily known for releasing a lot of stuff, but Chris Ware does still does the weekly or yeah. every couple of weeks or yeah, something. Exactly. But he's still like releasing this like huge fountain of work. If you're in Chicago, it's yeah, exactly. all right, but here we get none of it. But yeah. it's still like that neat contrast where someone's still out there producing like these incredible pages constantly, but it's still, and then it, you know, kind of goes to the next step of that. Well, I don't know if you'd call that a separate comic or what. Yeah. Well, I think you kind of have to keep in mind you're working for the future, really. You're not really wor When you're working on a graphic novel, you're not working for right now because you're working for the readers, sadly, who will read it when it's a book. Um, and the readers who are willing to come along with you through the serialization are, um, are just... It's, they're great readers. You're grateful to have them yeah. because it's not the full experience you'll get when you have the book in your hand. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. Uh, but I think actually when I finish Clyde Fans, I think the issue after that might be, I might try and do an issue or two that are just fully um, the comic book experience of single issue comics that, you know, have no long-term plans on them. Just to get, I've been reading a lot of Crumbs comics from the 70s again, and they're just so satisfying to read a comic book that's just packed full of a variety of short comics. Just I might give that a try. That greatness in 10 pages of... Yeah, the exactly. Five-page Philip K. Dick story or something. Yeah, like yeah. Well, Crumb was really a master at putting together those kind of comics that had like you know twenty comics in a twenty-page book, and you know it was a very satisfying experience in itself. Now, um, speaking on kind of time and putting in stuff, how how long um, did the Wimbledon Green take to put together? Well, the actual uh, comic itself, the interior of the book, took six months uh, from start to finish. I started it at the beginning of the summer and I finished it up at the end, right around Christmas time. Um, then I spent like a, about a month designing and putting together the book itself and, um, and then it took Drawn and Quarterly I guess about six months or something to actually get it out. 
So it was really, in total, you're talking about a year from conception to publication. It's that's very short. Yeah, that's really quick in contrast. Like, yeah. You find like th this kind of humor thing uh, is a lot easier to pump out like that, because it like, takes six months, but then like an issue of... Yeah, it was, more, it's, it was more the artwork than the content. Um, I'm work I've, I've been working in my sketchbooks in comic book form now since about the year 2000. Before that, my sketchbooks were almost always just drawings. Um, after my collection of my sketchbooks came out around 2000, which uh, was this book called Vernacular Drawings, um, I seemed to lose interest almost immediately after publishing that book in doing full-page drawings. I'm still doing some of that. I have a couple of sketchbooks I work in. But I started to do comic-related stuff, and I, I've done a fair amount of comics in this kind of looser style in those sketchbooks, and that's why Wimbledon Green could happen so fast, besides the fact that I felt some desire to really work on it during that period, too. But um, there's an expedient quality to just doing the work. Like, you just have a preset grid that I work in. I don't tend to vary the design of the pages very much, and I just it's very offhand. Like, I just basically draw the panels out in ink, maybe a couple of lines sketching in pencil, and it, it makes it go fast. Um, because you don't feel precious about the artwork, you don't worry about like what it looks like. So it's fine if uh, you know if one of the panels looks you know not that great. I just move on. I'm not worried about it. In the comic though, like working on Clyde fans, for example, it's very laborious. The whole process is slow. You know, I painstakingly work out what I want to tell, how the story I want to tell, how I want to tell it, and then the actual process of making the artwork, of drawing it and inking it, and then whiting out thousands of errors. It's it's really it's really a boring slow process. I mean, I might spend eight hours whiting out a page, and that's compared to like um, I, in that I could do several pages in the sketchbook in that same period, which would be finished artwork. So they're quite different in approach. And the other one is like, the approach for Clyde fans is like pulling teeth. It's slow, and I have to be. I'm really concerned with trying to make it as as perfect as I can. Um, and I just don't feel that in the sketchbook at all. So I see that as an opportunity to do other work that I wouldn't consider as worthy of my time. And, it, and in some sense, maybe that will turn out to be the better work because it's less uh, constipated. But, but it's certainly like I've been working on some other stuff in my sketchbooks now, some other long stories, much like Wimbledon Green in length, but in different content, some more serious, some equally you know, silly. Um, and I think... I'm reaching a point now where I've got these two paths of artwork, which allow me to do the more, the slower method for things like Clyde Fans, which I will continue to produce like graphic novels in a slow way that way, uh, with those subjects. And then on the side, I'm going to try and channel the other energy into producing faster works that I can, you know, feel less precious about. Because there's just only so much time in life, and yeah. I, I'm pretty sure that I've only got a couple of like uh, these graphic novels in me that are the slow ones. You know, if it takes you ten years to do one, I'm in my forties. You know, I've only got maybe three or four more books till I'm dead, considering how long I live. So I've got to get these other ideas out somehow. Um. Now, I noticed you've deviated from the the autobiographical, like the Palooka Bills before Clyde Fan was. Yeah. Is that something you're you're pretty much going to go with more storytelling than less? No, I just I moved away from autobiography for like reasons I had at the time that I felt it would be better to tell certain stories without autobiography. But um, I'm working in it again. My sketchbooks are very autobiographical. I'm working on a big story right now that's I don't know. It's going to be eighty or a hundred pages in my sketchbook, and it's all autobiographical. In fact, in that one, I'm trying to be as autobiographical as I can to try and really 
create some sense of what my life is about for someone who's reading it to impart something. But a good life, if you don't weaken, wasn't actually autobiographical, was it? No, no. Although the work before it was. Yeah. But good life is like a weird um, amalgam of fiction and autobiography. I mean, it's ba some of the stuff in there is true, and then some of it isn't true. So certainly, like conversations between Chester Brown and myself that take place in the book are true. Um, relatively. I mean, as true as those kind of conversations can be when you retranscribe them out into a comic. But then there's lots of like plot points and details. That's all just made up. Just kind of get the story going. Yeah, exactly. The story itself is just the motor. Like, I think of Good Life, uh, It's a Good Life If You Don't Weaken, as a book that's not really the sub... The plot of it is really the MacGuffin, as uh, Hitchcock used to say. Something to just set the thing in motion. The, the book really, to me, was more about trying to to tell a story that was about the more nebulous things, about your thoughts and your feelings and, and, and this sort of stuff that doesn't really like lend itself as the story. So you need a plot to have the character doing something. But really it was all just about me talking more than anything. <laughs> the internal yeah. monologue. Yeah, exactly. Um, one thing that really appealed to me with um, A Good Life is that it's one of the few real Canadian graphic novels. Um, because something like that, I don't know if I'm really noticing this, but there isn't like a, a lot of Canadian artists don't really have that like really strong, I'm a Canadian cartoonist yeah. attachment, but like with yourself, like all a lot of your work, like it really feels like when I go to Ontario, I get that like that feeling of like well, that's that, good to hear. It, it's very... That, well, that's kind of what I'm going for, although I, I want to keep it in the background, but I feel that like your work should reflect your life, and my life is in Ontario. And I want the specificity of like that thing. You know, a lot of people they sort of try to remove things from their writing to make it more universal, like so they won't bother to set it in the little town they live in or whatever. But I think that's the important details that, while not making up the story itself, are are like the things that make work res resonant in some way. Is to have like you know, if you're going to draw yourself walking down the street, you might as well pick the street you know, which mm -hmm. is your street. And um, yeah. And and I did want to like give a sense of Toronto in that first book, and of like the surrounding countryside, um, and that's still of interest to me. Um, I still feel like that that's like what the best work is about is about trying to be truthful, and so you know, and the best way to be truthful is to just you know talk about what you actually know. I'm a Canadian, and I'm proud. Yeah, and I am pretty nationalistic. I like Canada a lot. You know, I can't imagine leaving Canada. Even though there are many nice places in the world, um, you know these are where your roots are, and I like it here. Can you get much more Canadian than Guelph? Uh, well, maybe, maybe you <laughs> know, <laughs> Northern Ontario. I was going to say, yeah, exactly. So yeah. Nickel Town. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, have you found that that relocation to Guelph has helped with your own kind of output of work of not having as much distractions? Oh, I'm going to go to a little bookstore, John. You know. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I was never really that... Well, I mean, there was a period in Toronto where I was very active in the city. But in the last 10 years I lived there, I would say that I really had kind of retreated back into my apartment anyway. Um, so the trans, the, the moving to Guelph in day-to-day -day life hasn't been that different since I spend most of my time in my studio anyway. Um, but I do find that I'm happier in Guelph than I was in Toronto. Um, I still like Toronto, but when I go back to it, it seems busy to me now, and it seems hectic, and I know I'll never move back. In fact, I'd be more likely to move to an even smaller place out into the country or something. I just prefer that 
uh, that quieter pace. Some people really thrive on the city life, and I'm just, um, I think I'm finding out that I'm, you know, I grew up in rural Ontario, and maybe that's uh, where my natural inclinations lie. It's just hard for me to imagine going to Toronto and not seeing you and Chester <laughs> and Joe Matt <laughs> walking yeah. down the street together. Yeah, I'd sitting say. in the coffee shop. Yeah. Those days are long over now. Joe Matt's in Los Angeles and Chester has a condominium. Times Chester have changed. Chester has a condominium? <laughs> yep, exactly. Wow. He's still so in Toronto? Had, he's still in Toronto. He'll always be there. He loves Toronto. But, um, you know. I remember he lived in Vancouver for a short time. You know what's yeah. funny is, uh, he, he was really pining for Toronto. My friend. It's his uh, town. Yeah. My friend uh, moved into this place in Strathcona and, like, started getting Suki Lee's mail. It's like, it's the same place. <laughs> yeah. Um, a couple other questions. I have a question. Sure. Um, I read somewhere on a website you were doing a slide presentation performance piece. I do a slide talk. Oh. The slides really is overemphasizing it, though. There's only 12 slides, I think. Oh. Basically, it's. Um, I've done this talk a few times now. It's called Brief. Uh, stories about cartooning and basically it's like a half an hour talk, performance would be overdoing it, um, where I discuss um, short anecdotes usually a minute or two in length of a variety of different cartoonists or cartoonist history it's a kind of depressing talk because it's mostly about um, sad events from cartooning history in that vein, although I didn't use Wally Wood just because it's such a well known anecdote, but uh, Basically, it's something. It's a talk where I try through these short, um, these short segments to, I guess, sort of paint a picture of the life of the cartoonist. And it, it's like some of them are excessively, are particularly grim, but some of them are quite funny too. So it's it sort of falls, you know. By the end, I hope you get a feeling of like cartooning that's beyond what people think of it. Let's put it that way. But it is a little on the depressing side. You're not going to be doing this tonight. No, no. So tonight, Nobody asked me. Tonight's going to be pretty much like a, an interview. Bill's going to be interviewing yeah, you. Yeah, that's right. For how long is the interview for? I'm not sure. Just go at it. I'm sure they know that. <laughs> and then signing and whatnot. Um, what are some current stuff you're reading of comics that's like catching your eye? Well, I'm sure it's the usual stuff that everyone's reading, but um, certainly uh, nothing excites me more than Chris Ware and Ben Catcher's work. Both of them are like very high on my list. Um, of course, I'm reading anything by Dan Close or Adrian Tamine. Um, when Chester does his, Chester Brown does his next project, I'm sure I'll be very excited. What's it going to be? It's autobiography. He's going to be dealing with uh, uh, matters relating to his sex life. The ladies of the night. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so, I've heard rumors. Yeah. So I'm sure that'll be very interesting. And maybe more information than I want, but. Do you uh, do you pay attention to what's going on in, in comics from Europe or Japan? Um, only in a peripheral way. I do follow, like, I will buy uh, Japanese comics that I think are interesting. I certainly have been reading all the Tezuka uh, reprints that have been coming out, like Phoenix and uh, Buddha, which are really great. Um, there's been some amazing stuff in there. And uh, I'll read anything by Suge or Tatsumi that I can get my hands on. I've actually just been starting to read uh, work by uh, Hino, the horror artist, and that's kind of interesting in a sort of strange kind of folkish, folk tale sort of almost uh, folk art kind of way. It's pretty bizarre. Yeah. 
And, uh, but Europe, not so much. I mean, hit bits and pieces here and there. I tend to find I'm not as attracted to European cartooning as I am to North American cartooning, where a lot of it's really beautiful and interesting. I find that a lot of the European cartoonists, uh, this could just be in the translations, but this, they seem to be missing some sort of passionate spark that I find in the best North American cartoonists. There's some um, eccentric quality generally amongst uh, North American cartoonists that when they tackle some piece of material, it seems to be invested so deeply in their psyche that it's, it's, if they're, good, they're a good artist, it's very riveting. And I don't find that as much in the European work. I find it a little more dispassionate. It's well-crafted and interesting, but I don't know. I just, with European stuff, generally I find they don't have as good stories to tell. I think that could very well be the case. Do you think uh, one, one thing to that is that they've got such that support base, they don't feel that need to really tell a good story, where in North America there's still that idea that people are like fighting to get that comic on the shelf and stuff? I don't think it's that calculated. I think it may have something more to do with the intense nature of the culture here in North America. Things are really more in your face here, for lack of a better term. and. Um, I seem to. I think that the culture here is really vulgar in a way that, like, I don't know. It sort of pushes people off to the to the sidelines of the mainstream. I think in Europe the artists are not quite as alienated from their culture as they are here, and I think it's a more comfortable artistic stance that makes the work. Generally, this is a big generalization because there are. I can think of examples of the opposite as I'm saying it, but generally I find the work is more complacent. It's like they're the good quality foreign films example being an example where it might be very arty and very well done but perhaps a little on the dull side I, I, I look at like say the foreign film that was produced in like the classic period of foreign film where think, we think of generally like Bergman or Truffaut and stuff like that and I think that work had that kind of passion in it that I'm talking about for like the North American work I like now I'm not sure that European film has that same passion now either I don't know I'm not as familiar with it but I certainly feel that with the, with the cartoonists there so perhaps vulgar societies produce better comics. <laughs> <laughs> it may be. I'm not sure, but didn't like the Roman Empire do its best work in the end? It's possible. <laughs> I think some of the best art came out right near the end, so maybe we're near the fall. Mm, I think late Roman art tended towards monolithic gigantism, actually. Okay, well, maybe I'm not... I mean, not, I'm, let me tell you, I don't have the answer on that one. <laughs> Almost so. the, the history. Yeah, but. yeah. Well... I, I, I see a lot of history in Canadian comics. It commands Canadian cartoonists. It's actually one of the interesting things about Canadian comics for me is that there's a lot of it has an interest in history. The, the Louis Riel. Oh, yeah, I think autobiography sure. is also a case of yeah of telling a of telling a story. A, well, writing down your history for yeah. future generations. Yeah, I think that's the most potent reason for doing art. Basically, is to transcribe somehow. Um, uh, what you what your experience in the world is. Um, uh, I mean, coming up with a good story per se, or uh, you know, like the sort of Hollywood approach of you know you've got to have a good plot or a rollicking kind of thing, really has little to do with art. That has a lot to do with entertaining people. But I think ultimately, as an artist, you need you're trying to impart your personal experience. You may do it through fictional means, but ultimately, I think that's what you're trying to do. And so uh, that's, you know, that is the basis of any kind of uh, future understanding of this time. Um, I think we're nearing the end of our time. Um, because we'll be on the radio, is there any music that we should toss in anywhere? 
Well, you can, any kind of uh, early 20s jazz or blues is always fine to me. Um, I've been listening to a lot of Bach lately, but maybe that's just a bit too sedate. I don't know. I well, it is college radio. <laughs> yeah. I, the last time I was on, I was trying to do my Jurgen Goff voice. So. <laughs> um, let me think. What would I like? Um, uh, anything from Yazoo is acceptable. They fall every Yazoo. Album. Yazoo, the uh, no, no, the record label. Oh, not, I was going to say not that. the band. <laughs> I forgot there even was a band. Yeah. No, no, I mean like the record label of Yazoo, all their early twenties blues and jazz and stuff. You could pick anything out of that group, and there'd be something applicable. I'll do some Hard to imagine you as a punk. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> I was young. I, th I actually think of it not being that different in a way. Um, it's only natural that. You know, at a certain age in your life, when you uh, try to step out and like create your identity, that if you feel like you know an alienated teen or whatever, that was the perfect time to like uh, embrace the whole punk aesthetic. And I really was more of like um, I was never really like a hardcore punk type. I was more of like a club scene kind of kid. Kind of like a goth punk was. Yeah, it was pre-goth. I didn't even know there was such a thing as goth. But at one point, I do remember a friend of mine said to me, "Are you a goth now?" Oh, no. <laughs> and I said, what's a goth? <laughs> because at that point, there was this, it seemed like in the early 80s, really what you had was you had the, the more traditional punks, and then there was this sort of scary punks, they were kind of called, which was the beginnings of the goth thing. And I sort of did eventually fall into that category. The band and the, and the yeah, Bauhaus and Joy Division and that sort of stuff. And it was all, you know, playing on that kind of, you know, teenage angst. Do you ever still revisit some of that? Thanks Not really. Music. I mean, I can still feel some nostalgia for 80s type music if I hear it, but I don't feel any desire to listen to I'm it. I'm not going to put on, say, uh, you know, an old Bauhaus disc. No, no, although I could still, sometimes my wife will put on Morrissey, and that sounds good to me still. Um, I think that's because it's straight. he's a straightforward lyricist, and the music's pretty melodic, which appeals to me. Um, I don't tend to like music that has any, like, real rock overtones to mm -hmm. it, so I'm very much interested in hearing melody, generally. And so, like, when, you know, like, I don't really have any desire to hear, like, say, uh, Bauhaus now, because it just doesn't sound good to me anymore, although it may still be nostalgic. But that's the same, I could say, about, like, you know, Pink Floyd's The Wall album, which I heard all through my teen years, you know. It still has a nostalgic quality to hear it, but I don't want to own it. Yes. I don't want to listen to it. Do you still feel alienated? Uh, alienated is such a loaded term, but... Um, I mean, it's easy to apply it to teenage years because you're using it in a kind of derogatory way to make fun of yourself. Yeah. To say you're alienated as a 43-year-old man has a touch of embarrassment about it. <laughs> but I do... at your book signing? Yeah, yeah, I do say that I don't feel in league with the culture. Like, I don't feel that what they're marketing is aimed at me, although it certainly it can still work on me. Um, but I feel like I've stepped outside of the main demographic groups. And so I don't feel like in league, like when I hear people excited about new kinds of cars or certain movies or something, or in the airport I heard some young guys going on and on about video games, I do feel like disconnected and angry sometimes too. I actually was quite angry at these video game guys because they just wouldn't shut up and they were so loud and I had to hear their whole conversation. And by the end of it I thought, you know, video games are really a vulgarizing kind of like uh, influence on these young men. It's, it's astonishing like how much of a like how much video games suck the life out of people yeah and i do it's, think it's they're the ultimate they're a time waste destruction yeah it's like what did you do well i spent 10 hours playing a video game yesterday yeah like, wow that sounds like a waste of time i do think people have been fooled with the idea of interactivity that they're getting something out of like 
the, I don't believe a video game is more valuable than watching television. For like, people will argue that with the idea of interactive, like that they're so, doing something, yeah. but I don't really believe that. Television you can use for a. Uh, I think uh, we're getting that. Yeah. Let's finish oh. it up, Nod. Okay. Well, thank you for doing this with us, Seth. Oh no problem. And uh, 